All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, 0.72, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. We got Vance and, and Michael, just the uh, just separating the wheat from the chaff here. <laughs> What's going on, buddy? Yeah. What's up? I got like a little bit of like a crazy lighting thing here. So if I if I change colors midway through the broadcast, just know that I'm not fake tanning or anything. Adding some definition to the lettuce that you're that you're working with up there. <laughs> Bull markets, I usually grow it out. So I think uh, I think we're we're on the start of that. And usually my front hair, I can pull it down to my chin. Right now, it's like to my forehead. So, you know, we're, we're getting there slowly but surely. We did a little, our first like bull post about Das London, got these speakers locked in, all the stuff, trying to get the people riled up. And there were, I think most of the comments were about your hair. So, so, <laughs> so I was like, come on, having baby ETF. We got all the no. institutions in the room and it's like Vance's hair. <laughs> Grow out your hair, no shampoo. Next yeah. question. The shampoo industry, they're running a, it's a, it's a scam. I, that was a life-changing thing to not use as much. I shampooed every single day for most of my life. Yeah. Which is nuts. Yeah. Bleaching your hair every day is not, not a great solution for hair longevity. No, it is not. No, it is not. Don't do it. I I did know a guy that would do like a, like a tablespoon of honey in his hair. That was like the most unhinged. That's where I got off. What? That yeah. is, yeah. Oh no, he's probably in like the soul bra camp at this point. But you know, teach each his own. I, you know what, actually, I've heard too is uh, beer, like a can of beer in in the hair. There's something <laughs> wheat. It's like I don't know. It feels a little natural. Suds up there in the shower. <laughs> yeah, the last time I dumped a beer on my head was probably in college. So I think I think we'll leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> this is why the people tune into Bell Curve for the uh, for the hair care advice and products. The hair tips. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's uh let's let's start with this question. Vance, are we are we back? Are we back, baby? Are we is it so over? Are we so back? Um joking aside, last week, I mean obviously very good price action for Bitcoin. We got a little bit of a a teaser with the Bitcoin ETF, the iShares ticker IBTC appeared on the DTCC registry, then it was off and then suddenly it's been there since August, but there was um, it's felt like a little bit of FOMO or potentially front running the Bitcoin ETF. So what do you think? I think, I mean, I think beyond, uh, you know, are we back? Are we not back? Whatever. There's just been a lot of real work that's been done in crypto over the past 18 months since the, the Luna collapse. And I guess, you know, FTX is a year ago, but you have T-bills coming on chain. You have, I think, I think synthetics might hit a billion of, of, uh, volume today. Uh, you have DYDX, you know, that change has shift as well. Makers, you know, reverse the decline in stable coins and now it's going back up. Lido has gained a lot of market share. Um, games are launching at the end of the year. And then you have kind of like the institutions have finally adopted this with Larry Fink on Fox News, you know, shilling Bitcoin. So a lot of work has been done. And I think it's laying the groundwork for us coming back and um, like, you know, things things have like randomly doubled, it felt felt like, at least in the alts. And, you know, a lot of that stuff just doesn't feel too out of left field if these things are really generating revenue and, and generating traction. So I think, you know, in the next couple of years, you're, you're probably looking at bull market when it starts and, 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 you know, when it stops, like, who knows, it's anybody's guess, but we're at the back end of a rate hiking cycle. Um, and you know, crypto is decorrelating at exactly the time that you would hope it would amidst all this geopolitical uncertainty amidst all this, you know, high debt load, the high deficits, like the, the narratives couldn't be much better for crypto. And it's always about, um, it's not about whether you're at zero rates or 5%. 
It's about what's the direction of travel and what's the rate of change. And we just have a lot to work with. So I think it's time to be pretty optimistic. And, you know, you're going to get, we did, uh, we did a retrospective on 2021. There were eight pullbacks of 30%. Um, and each of those was, was a pretty incredible opportunity. And so that's at least where our head is at, um, is just continuing to, you know, accumulate high quality assets. Yeah, I think it's it's always tough to call when that exact moment is. The way I was thinking about it this week is you've had a lot of uh, headwinds shift to tailwinds. So I think one of the most difficult things when the market starts to turn like it did at the end of 2021 is, all right, crypto is still exciting, obviously have a very long term perspective and mindset on it. But man, does it feel like a lot of stuff is going against us for a really long time? So you had the regulatory stuff. You have the four-year cycle in the back of your head. So you're like, damn, I got two years ahead of me. You know, like the next obvious catalyst would be uh, the halving and rates, uh, rear weights are like just moving against me. But I feel like a lot of that has changed with A, now the halving is within basically spitting distance. You've got an iShares ETF, like a BlackRock ETF filing. You've got Larry Fink going on CNBC, like we've talked about quite a bit. And actually, I think real rates um, are moving in the right direction. So, you know, you've had a lot of people on the macro side of things talking about you can get two and a half percent real rates uh, in tips, which is a really, really good deal. Now the thinking goes, okay, it's probably not going to get much better than this. It's probably going to move in the opposite direction, which is good for Bitcoin, good for crypto. So I feel like a lot of those tailwinds that we had have just shifted to, or headwinds have shifted to tailwinds. So I, I had two funny anecdotes to your points walking around uh, New York uh, the past couple of weeks. The first was uh, I was in the West Village and this guy was like, okay, so you, like he's on this phone. He's on a phone call. It's like, all right, so you download Coinbase. Yep. And you, do you have money in there? Okay. okay. What do you think? It's like, you know, he's trying to like onboard someone. Yeah. And it was the day that Bitcoin popped. And so like, you know, there's like this like frantic like scramble for, you know, get the app downloaded and get, get on the get on Coinbase. I thought that was pretty funny. I've, I just haven't heard that in, I, I guess it's been almost two years. Um, wow. <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long. I know. Um, the other one was, I was at this dinner with this uh, Wall Street. Um, I think you were at this dinner. And, uh, you know, he was like, um, you know, you should put the whole fund into long bonds. I was like, okay, well, um, you know, in light, like how much would I make, you know, if I did that? And he's like, if rates go from 5% to 3% to to 2%, you're going to make 30%. I was like, that is just not interesting at all. <laughs> he's like, well, he's like, well, you can lever it up. I was like, oh, now we're talking. He's like, but you could be liquidated. So it just, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense in my mind for those trades. You know, you make 30% on the upside and you lose your shirt on the downside. And sure, you might be able to make 5% in T-bills, but we put that move in in a day for Bitcoin. So like, it's starting to become the point where you're getting attention from everyone. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, obviously, this is just speculative and it's hard to know the exact reason. But what do you think is responsible for the recent price change? Because there have been actually some pretty obvious catalysts. There's obviously all of the ETF stuff, which seems to be the most proximate one. There's the rates story that's sort of happening in the background. But the price action last week was really it's pretty violent. There was one candle for Bitcoin where printed like two or three thousand in you know, a span of <laughs> in a very short period of time. That's that's the first time I've seen something like that happen in you know to your point years. Um, so I felt mean, good. is there a felt good? It feels so, it felt feels right. so nice. <laughs> it does it does? Yeah. I mean, let let me just you know shout out to me for uh, for posting about a lot of the causes or what could have happened about this i mean we can throw the tweets up or not but like yeah. for for several for several weeks i was like hey there's just like <laughs> there's this guy uh and he's you know on darabit and there's all these rumors of who he is and who he's working with but like there's this guy who you know when eth went above 2k you know he was selling all these calls and he was selling them at like you know over 2000 and you know suppressing the vol of eth and, and suppressing the ability for it to break out and then, you know, ETH crashed and he sold, you know, like, I think like almost 300, 400,000 calls. And most of them were at the 1650 and 1700 strike. And the tweets that I put out were like, 
you know, I'm not really worried about Binance, but like if there's a really big face ripping rally, then this dude is going to be in trouble and he's either going to need to, you know, throw the keys back, you know, give all this, give all, cause he's, he's selling the right to buy ETH at this price. So he either has the ETH or he needs to go buy the ETH to give it to the person who's bought these options. And sure enough, as we approached those strikes, it just started to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. And, you know, one morning, Derivit changed the margin rules on the exchange for this one guy. And they're basically trying to rain. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> weird. Weird. All right. Pretty cool. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's like we, this, this is kind of something that happens late in the uh, bear cycle where selling options uh, is considered something that's just, you know, risk-free passive income. And, you know, it works until it doesn't, and it works until people buy the calls at the price squeezes to where you could be in trouble. And sure enough, it did. And so I think what we have now is a bit different, where um, this guy is probably out of, you know, ammunition on the ETH side. Um, He's bought back some of the calls. I'm sure he has to give up the collateral for, you know, a lot of the other ones. But like, you're no longer going to have that force suppressing, you know, ETH fall specifically, but also Bitcoin fall and, and price action in the space as a whole. So the market structure has changed dramatically over the past week, is I think what, what I would say is kind of the output of, of this move. The inputs are like, you know, DGENs being DGEN, this guy writing too many calls, Darebit kind of being a little bit, um, I, don't, I don't know if shady is the right word, but kind of just like a little bit close to the chest on, on who this guy was and if he actually had the collateral, but it appears to have resolved, which is good. Yeah. And without an exchange bankruptcy which, you know, cross our fingers, but hopefully that's not coming. Yeah. No more of those, please. They, you know what, the, you know, what this reminds me of a little bit is I actually remember uh, in the days before three arrow was, was sort of three arrows listening to Sue talk about this on uh, like the very early days of uncommon core about buying volatility at the beginning of the last bull market. And there were a lot of option sellers, which were caught off sides back then too. Um yeah, he he was he was the guy that was buying those options, and he I know the firms that he bought them off, and and they got just steamrolled. Yeah, and so you know, <laughs> shout out to Sue who is currently incarcerated, but hopefully he's here for the rest of the super cycle. Yeah, that's t- it. Was just funny because he was the guy who's like, "Don't get blown out, so you can't be a part of the super cycle." So there's a little bit of irony there, but. Yeah, I mean that's that's not to say that it's all going to play out exactly like that. I was I was even we started to get into this a little bit last episode, but I was thinking I was just remembering it's like 2019, much worse time period. But if you looked at like what the price action was doing, it was sort of like drifting up. It actually ended the year much higher, and I think it like kissed 12k around or Bitcoin did around February of 2020. But then it got this huge hole blown in it with COVID, and then it like really spiked back up after that. So obviously you can't do the counterfactual of what would have happened if COVID hadn't been the case, but maybe that's like what's going to happen now, which is not this sort of violent drop and then something that feels much more like a steep ascent, but this kind of slow, gradual kind of build. And there's a really good, there's a really good uh, article by this guy, Eddie Lazarin in who works at A16Z, the, uh, it's like the price, price cycle of innovation or something like that, where you know, he's reversed the sort of causal order that you might think this is how it works, which is fundamentals drive price. And he says it, that I this is rings true to me, at least price moves first. Uh, so maybe it's like people are off sides, liquidity is really low, people have to FOMO, but like something moves with the price, then the price gets people to make the calls that you were describing in the West Village, right? Like, hey, get me on Coinbase, like this Bitcoin thing is moving, I got to get in. Right. And then that price move begets more more buying. Then the media starts covering it for the first time in a in a positive light. Then that begets actual fundamentals, which is devs coming in, people building products. Um, and then the VC funding cycle typically restarts, and then you're sort of off to the races. So it's hard to predict how and when that kicks in, but I feel like that's the thing that has to kick in now. Absolutely. And I think we are off to the races, just like some a little bit of, you know, inside baseball on the inner workings of crypto markets. Additional to this is there is a cottage industry for OTC options for, you know, the major tokens, uh, definitely, but also the smaller tokens as well. And like, um, I'm not going to name any names, but like when you get deep into a bear market, a lot of these projects are like, man, like we need money. 
we don't want to sell our tokens, but we do want income. And so they'll structure these weird bilateral options agreements with OTC desks where they're like, can you write calls for us? And, you know, how they hedge those calls on the long tail of tokens is they go into uh, larger markets. And so they, they'll hedge the, you know, they'll hedge like the, I'm not going to name any tokens. They'll hedge XYZ token calls with uh, ETH positions or Bitcoin positions. And so like you have this kind of like chain reaction where it's not just the big tokens that have these weird option structure on them. Like you'll have the alts do this as well. And so like if someone starts getting blown out on like alt options that they've been overriding calls on, like that's where you see the kind of violent squeezes um, that were kind of the beginning of the 2020 cycle. And I don't think we've seen those yet which is kind of like why I'm still thinking that this might not be fully over. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, you know, I tweeted out that, you know, the buy walls of the future are built and paid for the bears. It's true. Um, it's just like, they don't actually want to do that, but they're kind of just putting themselves in a position where eventually being short vol on crypto is always a bad idea. Um, yeah. Don't fight the market. No, no yeah. man is that powerful. So that's that's really good inside baseball. I had no idea that was the case. Do you have like a checklist of things that you're looking at right now to be like, okay, there are some things that look positive, but XYZ thing hasn't happened yet? Um, I think the main one is just the credit rebuild. And we've talked about that, but it, credit seems to be re rebuilding on-chain versus off-chain. It's still impossible. And we're a borrower. Um, you know, It's still impossible for us to borrow collateral off-chain. Um, we have to post on-chain collateral. It's, you know, over collateralized by three X, but I think that's a healthy, more steady build of credit. And, you know, like Genesis had 50 billion of loan originations. We talked about this on last pod in Q4 of 2021. Um, you know, that is being built up on-chain in a more safe and more regulated way. Uh, and that's kind of the last thing that I'm looking for that, <laughs> One of the one of the funnier ones that I thought was on my checklist that appeared this week was like, when are ETH fees going to kind of start ripping again? And like, you know, people are like making all these like, you know, mental gymnastics arguments about like, is it DA? Is it settlement? You know, the L2 is taking fees. Is it the trading that's going to, you know, really hurt ETH fees? In reality, it's like one day of price action and a shitty Telegram bot that pumped Gwei for to 50 to 100 Gwei for an entire day. Imagine what that looks like in a in a bull market. So all the pieces are kind of starting to collate and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like in a good mood. This is a, this is the start of something. It feels like. Yeah. I tend to agree. One other, something else that, you know, may or may not be on the horizon, but there's the, there's a launch of some sort of major, it's like DYDX made their migration today. They are now live on Cosmos. So congratulations to the team at DYDX. We've also got, we've talked about it before, but Celestia, um, you know, they've done their airdrop. They are most likely launching, they're launching mainnet soon. So that also is like, that's kind of a, another big L1 potential to recapitalize the DGENs. And it's just like a very high quality project that I would say. Um, there's also probably a good amount of tokens that I would guess are going to launch in the somewhat near future in the in the Solana ecosystem. There's a, There's been like a mm. sort of quiet uh, ground build of like high quality projects that have launched and are live, but they don't necessarily have tokens yet. I have no inside information, but I would assume that there'll be tokens there soon. So I think there was going to be, there's going to be start. Yeah, there's going to be stuff that will get people excited again. I guess Bitcoin has to do its run first before there's a rotation into some of that other stuff. Yep. I mean, a couple things on that. I think that's exactly right. It's like when, when are the, okay. So you think about it in terms of, uh, Bitcoin runs first, it draws a bunch of TradFi in. TradFi is kind of like overpowered relative to the on-native or on-chain native DGENs. You, you kind of need both of those factions to be like roughly equal power. There's no like hard math to this. This is just like my intuition. And last time, you know, what got the DGENs up to full strength? It was DeFi Summer. It was all those airdrops. It was the Uni airdrop. It was the NFT stuff that was happening. This cycle, it feels like it's going to be probably like maker end game in Q1, Q2 that really recapitalizes people. Like that'll be like a large scale industrial farm that, you know, you're probably talking about mid nine figures, maybe even a billion of like incentives in the first year. Um, Celestia, um, you know, DYDX, they, they calculated what the cost of that airdrop was. It was over a billion. 
Like that's kind of the stuff that you're looking for to get the DGENs fully recapitalized. I was very curious about that. Where do you shake out here? Let me actually pull the tweet up. I think uh, someone from one confirmation, but Hasu retweeted it. It's basically looking at the dollar value of airdrops for major products or major projects out there. So here, I've got it. So there's DYDX on there. There's Uniswap. There's Arbitrum, Optimism. It actually was interesting because I had never really done the math to back into how much each of these projects spent. And they were pretty different. So here's, so, okay. DYDX, the cost of the airdrop was 1.4 billion. Uniswap, 657 million. Arbitrum, 1.4 billion, or just under 1.4. Blur, 342 million. ENS, 1.16 billion. Optimism, 234 million. That's a big differential, frankly, between Arbitrum and Optimism. <laughs> like I didn't have that off the top of my head, but what do you think about this whole concept? I mean, it's funny, like people have always given, you know, half the tokens roughly to the community because people have always given roughly half the tokens to the community. Like there is no underlying logic to it. There is no like X, Y, or Z, you know, inputs. And we're trying to get an efficiency of roughly, you know, some arbitrary number. I, I think everyone needs to do a better job of, uh, you know, uh, counting the impact and, and making these more efficient, but like add those all up. Like, what is that? That's two, four, that's three, that's 3.7. That's three. It's like $3.3 billion of money that was given to DGENs. And so like, you know, think about that as like the recapitalization event of DGENs in the last cycle. Um, you know, where, how can we add that up and, and, you know, get to a number roughly like that? You know, maybe Celestia launches at a billion and, you know, gives half of it away to people. That's 500 million. You know, say the maker end game incentives are a billion. Say the Infinex incentives are, you know, a couple hundred million. Like you can kind of get close to that. So my point is like, regardless if this is efficient or not, it's free money that's given to, you know, our faithful countrymen and hopefully not, you know, a bunch of mev bots that just sell it. Um, but like we're get, we're going to approach levels of this, you know, recapitalization fairly quickly. Um and I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be really interesting to see kind of what people do with the money this this time around, because I think people have learned some lessons in the past few years. I agree. I maybe I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think you'd know this probably better than me, but it feels like there's been a shift in thinking around airdrops. Whereas I think some of the really early teams like the the compounds of the world might have thought about this in terms of like, let's just get our token out there, right? This is supposed to be a governance token. Right. So I just wanted to get it into as many hands as we possibly can. Whereas now I think the thinking for airdrops and incentives is cost of customer acquisition. And so it's very easy to sort of look at this and then it's like, well, what do I want my community to do? How am I going to incentivize them? And I think these get roundly criticized. It's very easy to look at these numbers and say, hey, this is an enormous amount of money to spend. Did you actually see ROI? Was this particularly worth it? But I think what's maybe less apparent is that that wasn't, for some of these, necessarily the explicit intention. And then two, I would also qualify that these are non-cash expenses. So it's not like, there, yep. I'm sorry, there's just, there is, is a big difference between printing something, a token out of thin air that ends up being worth a lot of money and giving it away versus actually spending a billion dollars cash. It's just, I just think those are two very different things. And the question maybe I'd pose to you or for people who are kind of like dunking on these numbers is it's not an accident that some of the most successful protocols in crypto have also spent quite a bit on this. And I do wonder if some of these names would be up here if they hadn't done this, you know? Right. And so in that lens, it's worth it. Yeah. You know, how much of your company, like, you know, if you knew your company was going to be worth you know, call it, you know, Uniswap's worth like 4 billion. Would you give away 600 million of the supply? Yeah, of course you would. Um, now there's a lot of people who tried to shoot that gap and like hit the lip and didn't clear it where it's like, you know, you gave away 50% of the supply and everyone just sold it. So, you know, there's not much yeah. you can do, but the success case is so compelling that even if you waste a good portion of it, it is worth it. Um, and so like, you know, I, I've seen all these people saying, um, you know, Q2 2024, I'm going to watch margin call a bunch because like that's when I think the cycle top is going to be. The cycle top can't come until the DGENs are recapitalized and then they spend that money because that's what makes those like, you know, Avalanche I checked uh, in 2021 went from like, I forget what price point, but it went 14x in two months. That's not institutional capital. 
that's that's DJs in retail like getting in some sort of unholy alliance to just like medically go crazy and like that's what you're looking for you're looking for people to be recapitalized then you're looking for tradfi to come in really strong and really hot and that is when the uh the pvp market starts oh yeah and that's maybe. when it gets really crazy so like that's when you a, get the hated a, rally rhyme and reason right that's when you get the hated rally that's when you get nfts pumping and people are like what is this stuff and only when other folks start believing that is when you should start watching margin call so i think it like you know if you're, if you're TJ and Spartan posted, he's like, if you expect this to last nine more months, like, you know, there's just like a kind of a wrong mental frame. You're probably looking at, you know, the entire bull market of, of last cycle. For me, it started in 2019, in, in the summer of 2019. That's when Chainlink really went wild and synthetics went, went kind of wild. Um, and it lasted until, you know, the end of 2021. I mean, you could even say it lasted until like March of 2022. Uh-huh. So, that's super interesting to hear you say that because I have a different timeline on that because I like, I obviously am invested in crypto and own a bunch, but I view it as like the bull market for me. I view it more from the perspective of my seat at Blockworks as like, when does like activity really pick up? Like when are people, when are people hitting conferences? Like when are, when are people consuming information and stuff like that? So there is a, there's a lag at least for us. Like it took definitely 2019 did not feel like a bull market to me. That felt like painful. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's like, I I would, I would define the start of the bull market uh, as when things stop getting worse and they start getting better. Mm. And then I would kind of define the end, the end of the bull market is kind of when things stop getting better and they start getting worse. And there's obviously like, you know, uh, a very concentrated period, like 2021 was like the meat of it. But like there's events leading up to it, there's events that end it, there's, you know, characters, people come and go. Like it, these things last for for years, you know, summer of 2019 to March 2022, it's like almost three years. Um, yeah. And yeah, it takes a long so, time. So cycle Bitcoin, Bitcoin up first. I saw um, Mark over at Ave post is called Beds, Bitcoin, Ethereum. DeFi shit coins. There is a, and that's <laughs> actually, that's pretty funny. Uh, that's and good. probably, probably accurate, probably accurate. There is, there is usually the hated rally is a, is sort of a funny one, which is, I feel like that tends to be an asset that has some amount of mind share. So it's like kind of been around, but it's really low volume. And it's also something that the inside crypto community just completely writes off and it ends up just ripping really hard in everyone's face. So the one that I would say, like, maybe there could have been two of these uh, last cycle, which was Cardano, I would say, is a hated rally and yep. uh, and maybe BNB. So I feel like something like that ends up happening uh, this time as well. I actually do have a contender for who that, I don't really want to say who it is on air, but I, I have, a, I think there are a couple, I think there are a couple solid contenders for who it can be this time around. Shit, I'm blanking on his last name. Hal Press? Hal Press, yeah, Hal Press came on at the very end of the uh, when the bull market turned and gave some really good alpha actually around um, the turning like inflection points in markets. So if you guys want to go back, find this old Empire episode. Uh, hmm. He had some pretty good, pretty good alpha on that. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, etc. all in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real-world assets, so everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage. You'll see all of our speakers and use Bell20 for 20% off. Ticket prices are going up soon. Make sure you go use that code. I will see you in sunny London town in March. I'd love to get your take on 
The uh, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle this week. Uh, maybe we could call it that about uh, layer zero. Um, so basically, there is layer zero sort of in this sort of I guess partnership. Um, there was a proposal that was that was that was went live on Lido uh, between which was a layer zero purport, uh, proposal, which was supported by the Avalanche Foundation, BNB Chain, and Scroll, uh, which facilitated the bridging of um, wrap steeth uh, across Ethereum. So basically the idea, the, the selling point from the perspective of layer zero is that you have like one, it prevents fragmentation. Obviously, if you have many different bridges, it both fragments liquidity, but it's also a really poor uh, user experience standpoint. So you're like, well, which one is the canonical uh, wrap steeth, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would say, you know, not, there was, a, there was some, there was some pushback. Um, I think, you know, I, I like the, the team at layer zero. I feel like their heart's in the right place, but also I think some of it was pretty, pretty valid. Uh, um, Hart Lambert posted, uh, basically about some of the security concerns on the multi-sig that supports, um, that supports the layer zero tech and what were the, if there was some sort of exploit, um, Hasu had pretty strong pushback, which is basically just the, the idea of it to paraphrase is felt sort of strong armed, um, into trying to say that Lido approved this while this was still in proposal. Uh, they were sort of trying to push this idea that this was the one canonical bridge, uh, whereas that hadn't, you know, this had to, this has to be evaluated by the DAO on the DAO's timeline across other service providers and vendors. There needs to be a process. And then if we think this is the best solution, we can vote on this, but it felt uh, maybe maybe from an optics or tactic standpoint, this wasn't received super well. How do how do you view this whole this whole uh, debacle? I mean, just so people understand, it's it's kind of like the difference of like remember when there were all those shoddy versions of USDC on Solana? There was like ten USDCs. Yeah. It's like which one is the real USDC? Like, yeah. does the full faith and credit of USDC stand behind each individual bridge that it was bridged on? And the answer is like, obviously, no. Like if no. something happens to your, uh, you know, whatever XYZ USDC on Solana and you ask for, you know, USDC to blacklist it or help you out of a hack, like it's just like not their problem. It's not their security vector. They don't own that. Um, and so Lido conversation is kind of the same thing. Bridging has long been a contentious topic for Lido. And it's, a, it's, it's, uh, it's out of the looking out for the best interest of users in terms of they want to have super secure bridges and they want to be able to have kind of like canonical versions of wraps teeth. So when you stake your ETH, transfer it or buy it on layer zero or whatever, wherever other blockchain it may live on, you get the real wraps teeth. And there's all sorts of other arguments other than security tied up in this. Another one is who owns the trademark for wraps teeth? You know, is yeah. it, is that like a universal thing? I mean, you can also kind of extend this to like who owns a trademark for USDT, like, or, or like all the shit that Justin Sun is doing on Tron. Like, I'm sure those two things are kind of like a similar argument, but I don't know. You know, I I think this is kind of spilt milk under the bridge. This will be sorted out. Um, Like you said, I like the layers here, guys. I obviously like the Lido guys, Um, but uh, you know, people are just trying to get an edge on each other. Layer zero is in a very competitive game and, Hart Lamber, I think his his heart is in the right place, no pun intended. Uh, but he also runs a bridge, um, and you know, there's there's obviously kind of like he wants people to do it one way. Layer Zero wants to move fast and break things, but at the end of the day, Lido is kind of the adjudicator of what the real rap steep is. So probably should just defer to them. Yeah, uh, big fan of the Lido Lido team as well. Obviously, I from the from the perspective of just like underscore the the sort of business rationale or the imperative here. There's actually really we did a great interview with uh, Sam Kazamian over at Frax, who did a great job of describing sort of the similar the similarity even between the business model of like a stable coin versus a uh, a liquid staking token versus a bridge. And it's actually like all kind of like you're managing withdrawable deposits and then an asset which you want to be used and viewed as as money uh, and there's a huge liquidity advantage there and kind of like this really big network effect that sort of kicks in so the race to be like the canonical thing where you don't even have to consider okay there aren't 10 different bridged versions of this essentially there's one bridged version of this and it's as good as gold it should be the consumer views it as the same thing there's a huge advantage there and i would guess like a pretty massive power law which is maybe why you'll start to see more BD wars around like this as things kind of heat up. 
Yeah, it's the same thing as the Circle Bridge too, right? Like they they want to own the canonical version. Not surprising. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, all right, maybe um, we can talk a little bit about the. There's been a lot of blowback about the the Wall Street Journal uh, this this week. Nick Carter, the national treasure slash investigative <laughs> reporter that he is, Chad, I, big Chad. Chad. I I'm actually. I'm always like, dude, he does so much. I mean, he's a full-time, you know, running Castle Island with Matt and still finds the time to like thoroughly read into the data sources here and sort of found that there's basically a, a claim that the Wall Street Journal published where they sourced from, which they sourced from Elliptic, which originally reported that Hamas raised, you know, $41 million um, in crypto, which sort of got expanded and Nick dug into the data and found that they were actually counting exchange wallets and just assuming that that all of that was, I mean, come on. And then Elliptic actually came out and said they refuted the claims that the Wall Street Journal put together. It feels pretty one-sided. I actually, I didn't watch it, but I saw it was getting tweeted around today that there was a, a Senate banking committee where actual senators were saying, hey, this doesn't feel like this was accurately sourced um, or is or is valid data. But the Wall Street Journal hasn't published a retraction. And like Elizabeth Warren and the the classic sort of crew just all cottoned on to this. And yeah, it feels like not particularly great from a journalistic perspective. Yeah. And the other thing is like the Ian Talley guy, you know, who hasn't been on Twitter in like a year or something, how that's possible for a journalist. I mean, you tell me, but, um, you know, he gets on and he instead of like, saying anything of any substance he just starts tweeting motivational quotes cryptic bullshit and like you know things that have no uh, no relevancy to the current you know retraction or correction case that he's involved in um and how is that is that like the official wall street journal you know editorial board response like you know you go freelance on twitter if you get called out and your source is you know refuted on an article that 120 congress people you know signed a letter for like it's just insane and uh it's really sad because i love the wall street journal like that's one of the last I know. mainstream I know, outlets that i read and you know i'm looking at my phone like fuck like do i have to cancel this now like do i still want to talk to their reporters like do i still want to you know support kind of what they're doing because they do have some great crypto takes um at least i think you know they were early to kind of gary gensler and his quest to you know eradicate the industry and they push back on that but like they've done more harm with this article than any good that they've done over the past few years. And so, I mean, retractions are not just ethical, they're necessary, you know, reporting like this can stimulate industry's growth. It can push policy in the wrong direction. Um, and this is how you get things like the Patriot Act. This is how you get things like legislation that can just invade your privacy and change things unilaterally. So I hope that Nick Carter continues his holy war against the wall street journal and, and this guy in particular, They've always, you know, I've looked at these people's reporting. They always have kind of posted negative slanted pieces on crypto. Um, they clearly are not independent. And just that his response, Ian Talley's response is just frankly disgusting. Like, how are you an adult male that works in one of the most respected news organizations in the world? And your response is just to go on Twitter and shitpost. Like, not helpful. Didn't feel like it was particularly good spirited engagement is what I would say. <laughs> like... Because no, I mean he felt defensive. Yeah. More than anything else. Yeah. I don't. I just you know usually I I really do believe as like I do believe in media. I I think there there are, there's an abundance of bad takes around media. The the way I would describe it is like for maybe the invisible part is you know how you when you go to an airport and then the people who work at the airport are really rude to you. And you're like, why is this person being so rude to me? And then you see the person ahead of you like berating this airport worker because you know their their flight was delayed and something that's like not their fault at all that is what it feels like to work in media like you do just get berated yeah. by people constantly and it makes you very callous to like when people actually have a point but in this specific instance i feel that the data is so manifest it's so clearly a mistake i don't understand how they haven't published a retraction here this just feels like really bad, really bad practice. And it's really damaging too, because it gets cited in these Senate hearings and has the potential to influence regulation. It's so, it's so bad. Like, 
I don't I mean, know. no matter what industry you're in, if you fuck up, you know, you should take your medicine. You should admit that you were wrong and you should, you know, try to rectify it. And like, if we make a shitty investment that embarrasses the firm, you think our LPs are going to yell at us a hundred percent. But like, <laughs> look, like I, I think of myself as like an 18 year old in a 32 year old's body, but like, I'm able to kind of get right with myself and say, you know, I fucked up. That's okay. The fact that this guy isn't is just so bearish on what's going on in that newsroom. It makes me question not only their crypto reporting, but kind of everything else. Like how much of what else we're reading is kind of this vein of like misinformation or, you know, misunderstood information. It's really, really sad. Gelman Amnesia. Dude, get him out of here. Yeah. That's uh, it's like when you when you know something and you read about it in the media and you're like, oh my god, this is so wrong. And how could they possibly have printed this? But then you turn the page to something that you don't know about and you continue to treat it as if it's fact. And it's it's just such a true such a true thing. Um, yeah, it's discouraging for sure. A lot of stuff happening in the world today. Having you know slanted media or uninformed media can only make things worse. So I'm, I'm we've talked about this before, but like. <laughs> I'm so bullish on things like community notes. I think that might be a part of the future of journalism. Um, and I hope just more third-party verification is, is a part of what goes on in the future. Yeah, I agree with that. One thing I'd, I'd love to get your your take on, Vince, I actually feel like Michael and I talked about this a little bit um, when we were doing a couple of our solo episodes a couple weeks ago. But there, so Celestia is integrating with um, Arbitrum Orbit for data availability. So as a reminder to folks, uh, Arbitrum, the construction is, it's actually, there was a really great, we'll link it in the show notes. There was a great thread with uh, Stephen Goldfeder over at Arbitrum explaining the difference in business model between Optimism and Arbitrum. And he likened it to two theme park models. Uh, one is a theme park model like Disney, where you have to pay a lot upfront, but once you go in, every single ride is free, which is the Arbitrum business model. And if you want to license the, the layer two to fork it, you can do that, but you have to pay a licensing fee. And then there's the other business model of Coney Island, where it's free to go in, but you have to pay to use everything. And that's sort of like the uh, the optimism business model. And that's why you're starting mm -hmm. to see optimism have law of chains because they need to extract value or, or capture value in some way, whereas Arbitrum does it via licensing. But what you can do at Arbitrum is you there's a layer three, which settles down to Arbitrum, and that's aligned with the... Um, the economic incentives of the chain. So Arbit that's called Arbitrum Orbit, which is the platform that allows you to easily spin up a layer three. And that integrates with Celestia's data availability. How do, how do you view, because there's going to be a bunch of data availability solutions online relatively soon. So we're going to have Celestia, which rollups on Ethereum can choose to integrate with. Uh, there's going to be EigenDA, Polygon Avail, all of these different things. And basically, that's going to make costs much cheaper for, for rollups. So the largest cost for rollup, from my understanding, is, and it's a variable cost as well, is data availability posting to Ethereum. So basically, rollups are going to get a big, depending on how they want to, if they want to pass through that cost to their users, it's going to become much cheaper to interact on rollups or rollups are going to get more profitable. But how, how do you view, I guess I'm just thinking about it a lot because Celestia is launching soon, but how do you view data availability and what that enables, like cheaper DA enables for the ecosystem. Yeah. So if I think about the construction of fees on ETH, um, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's a misdeployed telegram bot. It's all the, you know, random shit coins. It's all the assets that are in DeFi. It's all the high quality NFTs. Like, you know, I've said this before and it's interesting, the rollups, they're a very small share of ETH fees. You mm. know, there, there may be 5%. And so, you know, what, how does that 5% get to 10% or go to zero? You know, I mean, a lot more rollups is one idea. Right. And I'm sure that that's coming. And, you know, like integrating with Celestia or not, uh, still some aspect of fees will flow to Ethereum. And so I think there's going to be a lot more rollups. Sure, some of them might use, uh, you know, DA from Celestia or Eigenlayer or Avail, but like that's really not going to be material to the fees of ETH. Like what would be material is if the NFTs moved, if the DeFi moved, if the assets moved. And I think, you know, the flow of those assets is dependent on a few things. But what we've seen for the L3s, and honestly, the L2s as well, is that they have kind of failed in attracting the assets to stay on them. Mm. And like, you know, you can even look at Solana, there's 300 million of DeFi TVL there. 
Like there's mm-hmm. really has never been this move to these other chains and, and sure one day it may happen, but like bridging, which we just talked about remains like a huge, huge issue. And frankly, like the institutions are not willing to go across these bridges. And so like rather thinking about it from the perspective of like, oh my God, you know, DA or Celestia DA is going to take a shitload of fees away from ETH. I, I don't think that's right. Um, I think, you know, ETH fees are just going to continue to grow. And then like the bar for, you know, mooning 50 to 100 GUI on a random day is very low. So like that's going to come back. I think the burden of proof is kind of on like Celestia DA, Eigen DA, whatever else. It's like, how are these systems sustainable um, when you have very little fees flowing through them? Uh, can you always live on incentives? You know, like, is there a path where you can get combinatorial uh, safety or staking security from ETH that's restaked? Like, I would give kind of a point to EigenDA on that front and like probably, you know, minus points from Celestia DA on the other. But like these things, like, I feel like they, they've launched and people have been like, it's over. You know, the ETH DA game is, it's been fun. We're going to have to pack it up. And it's just not the case because that's not where ETH does not derive a significant portion of its fees from these rollups. Um, and so I expect that to continue to be the case. And the burden of proof is, is on these L3s to prove that there's any product market fit on them in general. Like I, I really like Polygon. I really like, you know, a lot of the other kind of like L3 style uh, efforts that people are putting out, but like those have frankly failed. Um, you just like launching in an isolated vacuum is not worth the cost savings that you get uh, when you're not on ETH L1. So that, that's my perspective. Um, I do think on the margins, something like, you know, EigenDA is bullish ETH. Like the idea that you have these like alternative validator systems where you can just like, you know, pick up, you know, 10, 15% extra yield for your ETH. That's really cool. It's for super ETH aligned. Like it's only going to reinforce the network effects. I'm more specious on something like Celestia. I don't know what that appeals to in terms of just like a crowd. And uh, I mean, last, last point on this. So let's say Celestia, something happens and it launches 100 million FTB. Is that a secure DA layer? Like, is the is like you know like it, the market cap is some function of the security there because it's secured by the native token. Like, do you want to secure your rollup on something that has a smaller market cap than your rollup? I don't know. Yeah, I, the Celestia thing. I think it's it's unclear to me where I I just I think if I guessed anything, I'd just be I'd just be guessing. I don't know if I have a particularly sophisticated take on it. It's just there's. There's the where the actual stuff happens, the execution layer. There's the DA layer, and then there's settlement. I agree. Most of the stuff hasn't moved off of ETH for now. I agree. I think most of the stuff is actually. There's probably going to be a bunch of projects that still launch on ETH main chain. Like Pepe was a really good indication of this. Like that's where the community is. That's where the people with money are. Like probably will be a bunch of fees that still get generated from projects on main chain. I think this. I think the Celestia thing, if they can really. I really like what they have with their their light nodes. I think that's the, the it, I think that blockchains are going to start to gravitate towards that. Like Ethereum has data availability sampling on their timeline. Solana, it is possible to do. They don't view it as a something that they need to do today, but I think it probably is the right way. I don't know. I've been thinking. I know this is a heretical thing to say, but this my problem with solo staking has always like relying on that as a core tenant for the network is like it's great. It is 100% a really great thing to do. It's a huge accomplishment of both the Bitcoin and the ETH blockchains. But I do wonder out like how many regular average people there are out there that will run the hardware setup of an ETH full node. And I do wonder if like maybe a way that we could get the benefit of users being able to actually verify all the transactions that happening on are happening on chain is something like the Celestia Light node. Like kind of like a light client that you could easily run on an iPad, something like that. You can still verify the transactions, even if you're not involved with constructing the blocks per se. I think that would be a really good, I've started to sort of think about that as a compromise because what I think of as blockchains, it's a shared, it's a shared database that you have both read and write. Like the average user can both read and write if you want to, but maybe there's a lot of people that don't really care about writing and that's not the the point. But you still want to be able to verify that all of the rules that everyone has agreed to are being done in a good way. So this is sort of a I went on a little bit of a monologue just there, but I, I do that's that's why I, I that's why I've always liked the Celestia part of that equation, which is their their light nodes and their data availability sampling. I think has legs. I don't know. I I, I think you're probably right. It probably gets adopted by a bunch of different blockchains and becomes less novel. Um, like when ETH adopted proof of stake from Cosmos. 
Uh, but like the supply side and how transactions get validated is like the end part of the supply chain, the yeah. demand, the culture, the native asset being used as money, the NFTs that have provenance on a blockchain, like that's the product that you're selling. And, you know, it's like, it's great that like people have figured out, you know, a new way to kind of square the circle, but ultimately that's not like, not what Matt, like I remember maybe, I think you probably, yeah, you're, you're here when like, you know, remember when DAGs, you know, yeah. d- you know, IOTA, and that was the only way that supply chain finance was going to work. And, you know, things, you know, Wasm and uh, Mimblewimble and, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. there's, all, there's all these things that kind of come and go. And it's not to say that Celestia won't be impactful or that they're wrong. I think they're probably right. It's just uh, it never is purely a technology thing. And sometimes that gets a little lost. Um, but we'll we'll see, you know. Um some of these things have staying power. Some of these things change the game, but a lot of these things are so path dependent. Like you're only you're only Ethereum because you launched in 2014 and you went to the ups and downs. You have Vitalik, you have this community. You know, like Celestia is just starting on that journey, and it's so much easier. And I've heard this a lot of, about technology that has not launched. It's like you know this is going to change the game, and it's X, Y, and Z. And when it comes out, usually there's kind of like, yep, we're soft launching this, and it's going to take a little time, and this is like the testnet version, and you know, like things are rarely as seamless as they seem as when they're kind of unlaunched. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a lot of merit to that. Um, last, last story I want to honestly get your take on. We were talking about a little bit. It's a bit of a self shell, but we uh, we launched something this week which we've been putting together for a long time, which is the Arbitrum Coalition. So we've been looking at DAOs for a long time, just in terms of how they source labor. People have called this something different over the years. People. It was a little while ago, people used to call it governance mining, but the idea is as especially these rollups on ETH start to take their training wheels off and rely less on the foundation. You need very high quality service providers that can actually like are deeply entrenched in the ecosystem, know what's going on and can help sort of guide and form the strategy. So we Blockworks Research teamed up with Gauntlet and Trail of Bits to basically be like, okay, um, let's solve some of your problems about just like creating a strategic roadmap, because this is something that happens in the DAO all the time. A proposal will go live. People will be like, okay, I like the idea of this, but I don't understand how it fits into the broader strategy. I don't know how to source the service providers, blah, blah, blah. And then you just lose momentum. So it's kind of this combination of fixing that problem so things can actually happen in the DAO. And then the two big things that Arbitrum are really going to need moving forward are audits going into the future and the stuff that Gauntlet can do. So like when you want to roll out a new feature, like making sure there's not some you know, catastrophic bug or way that people are going to interact with it that's going to take down the system. And it, the self-show part of this being over, I do think that you're going to see that this was a prediction of this year. Actually, if you remember the predictions we did going into this yeah. year, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's going to be the rise of these like guilds and professional service providers. And I, my hope would be that if this is successful, that a lot of others do this across other protocols because DAOs need like good professional service providers. So that's what I would... I, I, I love this. I mean, there's product market fit for having adults in the room for these DAOs. And uh, we need more of that, not less of it. Like, there was a vote for Lido to give incentives to Arbitrum to stake ETH. And it was like literally like a no-lose proposition. Yeah. Uh, and they voted against it just because of like bureaucratic mismanagement. And so, you know, government for the people, by the people, sometimes you need a little bit of a helping hand along the way. And not just a helping hand, but being data-driven, being organized, hearing stakeholders out, interviewing people to understand how they're feeling and what they want. Like that's all part of this job. And I'm so bullish on, on you guys for doing this. Like there's at least 10 to 20 to 30 more protocols that need this. Um, and like the hardest part is, is the, uh, there's like, you know, whenever others try to do this, I find there's like this like level of mistrust and, you know, frankly, like nepotism that results in like people being awarded things that are kind of self-dealing. Um, being able to guarantee that there's someone who's watching is, is so helpful because like, you know, you guys have GovHub, but things are moving quickly and there's so many of these things that it can get out of hand fast. You know what else that I, well, I appreciate the kind words. I, and I would say like, this is not just a Blockworks research story. Like my hope would be that lots of, if this is successful, that there are lots of these, that these DAOs, because one of the things that I feel like is missing from DAOs is like you guys invest in companies, right? Like how would you feel if there was just no strategic roadmap for a company? It's like, hey, we need like like you we need to know where we're going here because if you don't know where we're going, then we don't know how to prioritize anything. 
And I actually, I think a good example of the pitfalls of not having a cohesive strategic vision is what happened in Cosmos Land with the fumbling of the bag with Stride. Like the hub had the opportunity oh, to I acquire know. Stride, and it was just such a layup. I feel like for additional source of revenue, we solve a lot of the problems that we're seeing in Ethland. So the Stride part of the back end actually becomes very decentralized. There's token voting that governs it. You have the LSM, which serves as regulation additional source and a value add for the hub, which is still seeking that. But everyone is just like, well, how much does it cost? How much Adam do I need to mint? It's like, guys, you know, but if you had a strategic vision to be like, here's where I'm going to get, here's how it's going to, how much it's going to cost, but it's going to pay me back 10 times because it's going to help me to get there and to make decisions faster. You know, like. Uh, dude, I went through the same thing on Maker where people were like, you know, we're wasting, you know, it's like $2 million. I was like, yeah, I know, but this could result in like, tens of billions of dollars of potential value they're like i know but like we're racing the money it's like just stop like you know there's i, I so i think i think retail and crypto is smarter and can sniff out bullshit faster than any other investor class that i've ever encountered i think when it comes to governing things sometimes they can trip over their own shoelaces and they just need help um mm. and having someone like you guys just you know being able to at least set the guardrails for the discussion needs to happen. I appreciate it, man. That's the goal. Just setting, setting guardrails basically. Um, all right. This was a, this was a fun one. Anything else on a good one. your end? Anything else coming up from the framework side of things? What's going on with, with framework? Let me, let me think. Um, what's going on with framework? I mean, we're, uh, you know, we're outside we're of the hair We're care. having a good time outside of the hair care, man. <laughs> we're deploying. We're having a good time. Uh, I'm spending more time on the East Coast. Um, you know, we're good. I feel like we came into this market in a really strong position or just kind of like exploiting that opportunity. And, you know, we're we're just riding the wave now. So, well, the other, the other thing that I'm doing personally is like making the rounds with Wall Street folks and, and kind of, I noticed that. you know, yeah. spreading the gospel. You know, someone needs to do it. Maybe a guy with hair like this. <laughs> Why not? All right. Me? What is the, uh, <laughs> just out of curiosity, what has the response been from from Wall Streeters right now? Positive. Very positive. Um, as I said, the narratives of, you know, high deficits, high debt, um, low growth, you know, higher inflation, like it all kind of is bullish gold and people think gold and, then it's a short hop to Bitcoin. And once you're in that, like there's kind of a panacea of interesting technology things to invest in. But the other stuff that we see is like the PMs on trading desks of large hedge funds, which you all know and have heard of, are, are trying to figure out how to get access to this. Yeah. And they're pushing their risk team. They're pushing their back office team. But the thing that you know really kind of help, it enables them to trade this asset class is an ETF. Mm. Um, and I, like, you know, the... How can you tell that there's an interest in, in Wall Street that's upticking? The CME is now the exchange with the highest open interest in all of crypto. Like, really? You sold. You're sold. That. You're going to the bankers. Like it happened. And so, you know, it's 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 huge to have that happen. And, and the last time that it, that that happened was you know late 2020. So, it's just another positive indication that you know the the herd is coming. To quote Michael Novogratz. Indeed. Yeah. The it was interesting. We had a bunch of like webinars at that point with much more traditional traders. And it was like, why, why do you trade on the CME? And it's super simple answer. It's just because it plugs into their existing infrastructure, right? They're all set up to trade on CME. They don't have to like learn something else. Uh, so it's like, it's enough to take risk on something like Bitcoin or ETH, but you don't want to have to take risk on a totally new asset class and then set up an entirely new background infrastructure. That said, I do think that's one of the reasons why I'm so bullish on crypto native funds is because like you guys have taken the time to actually set up that infrastructure and your world of opportunities is just so much broader than someone who's like, yeah, yeah I'll just trade on CME and I don't really want to take the time to set that up. It's, it's literally closed on the weekends. I know. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, that's, that's the other thing. That's the other thing I've been thinking about. So in the bull market, of 2021, the weekend moves were hugely important. You kind of tell what what type of week it was going to be by the weekend moves. Mm. That that's kind of back too. Yeah. So, and and where do the crypto natives have a leg up on the institutions on the weekends? Weekends, baby. Yeah, they do. 
for the terminally boys. Terminally internet addicted. Um, uh, let, let me let me say something about that too. People have been complaining about like you know I'm spending too much time on the internet. Like you know this is really taking it out of me. Crypto is twenty four seven. Then stop. <laughs> like you know, like your ancestors were digging ditches. Like you're complaining about being on the internet. I, I don't understand that. I'm actually, I reached out to him after he posted this. So he's going to be on another BlockWorks podcast. But Ben Carlson, who posts under A Wealth of Common Sense, put out this great piece, which is people have more money now than they've ever had. And they're more miserable than they ever were. And there is something funny about that. Uh, I, I don't really fully understand it. But if you were to just look at very objective measures, like if I were to say, Vance, like what, what do you need in order to be happy? You know, you'd be like, well, I want like, more money in my pocket, like I want access to better this, that, or the other thing. Like on many observable metrics, life is improving for everyone and not just people at the top, which is the, the popular narrative, like people in the lower income brackets who actually did better for the most part during during inflationary periods. I know people always get super pissed about that, but that's just, you can just look at the data and, but people are still super upset. So it's just an, it's an interesting paradox of modern life that actually We've solved a lot of problems for people, but people seem to be pretty upset about everything all the time. So find something that you love to do. And I honestly love crypto. Like, yeah, me too, man. I've talked to friends about, and they're like, you know, why don't, why don't you just hang it up? I'm like, what would I do? I would just sit at home and trade crypto probably and shit post under an alt. Like I'm already doing what I love, but I'm doing it with, you know, one of my best friends and like, yeah, I, I just absolutely love it. So if you don't, you know, maybe it's not for you, but I really don't see any reason to complain about it. I'm totally with you. Completely agree. Uh, all right, partner. This was a really fun one. I will uh, see you next week. 